in the ancient world, to be human was to be male, like the sliding scale with perfect masculinity at the top and then femininity at the bottom. For a woman to be masculine was to move up the scale toward perfection. And then this gender ambiguity actually in the middle. The way the image of God had been defined was leaving out people for whom those categories were not neat and clean and clear. If our theology doesn't work for everyone, it doesn't work. This modern world is of particular interest to women. Betwixt, at the intersection of faith and culture. Hi, everybody. I'm Deb Gregory, curator of the Betwixt podcast. Thanks for joining the conversation. We're continuing our series on the image of God and the feminine experience. If you missed the previous episodes on this topic, head on over to BetwixPodcast.com, where you can catch up to speed and listen to the previous episodes. Today, we dig into the relational view of the image of God. But before we jump into this conversation with our guest, I think we need a little backstory. Up until the Reformation, the idea that the image of God was tied to human attributes like rationality and the will, this was the dominant position of the church. But with the rise of existentialism and psychoanalysis, a a new brand of thinkers like Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, and Freud brought forth a deconstruction of identity. Sociologist Anthony Gliddens explains, quote, We no longer have a pre-existing identity based on our gender, class, family, or locality. Everything is open to question, and we're forced to continually look at ourselves and continuously ask the question, Who am I? End quote. Questions of how we know ourselves, experience others, and, and how the mind makes meaning, it changed society. And it also changed the way many influential theologians approached key matters of doctrine, including the Imago Dei. Okay, so where should we begin? Well, let's start in 1923 Germany. The year swastika-clad standard bearers marched the streets of Munich. A Jewish philosopher with a wily beard, the envy of hipsters everywhere, feverishly penned a manifesto. His ideas would soon change the experience of the Imago Dei for Christian women around the world within decades. What did he write? One hyphenated word. I, thou. This philosopher, Martin Buber, he started with the understanding that the word I, the the concept I, it can't even exist. It has no meaning unless it's in relationship to something else. Buber conceived that there are two main ways of relating that enable the existence of I. These are the I-it and the I-thou relationships. So when we relate to something as an it, it becomes a subject. So like, I want it, I desire it, I I love it, I hate it, I perceive it. And through these it experiences, we build upon our ever-evolving narrative of self. And Buber believed that his relative, Karl Marx, had it all wrong. Marx's socialism was built upon I-it relationships. Buber said, Man cannot live without it, but with it alone, he cannot be man. He believed that to be human was to be relational and to seek encounters with thou. So rejecting the Nazi blood and soil fertility motifs, he drew upon a different image of mother and baby. 
When a baby is inside a mother's womb, the most natural state of human relating occurs. The two are different people, and yet they're united in a state of perfect reciprocity. Vital fluids flowing in and out, sustaining both. But once the baby bursts forth from the womb into a completely new world filled with its, the yearning for that original experience of unity in differentiation becomes a primary human quest. We innately desire to be a thou to someone else rather than an it. And so the baby reaches for a finger while cooing at his mother. Through their encounter, the baby forms a sense of self in relation to his mother. He is an I to her thou. In the throes of the political and social turbulence of a rising Nazism, German theologians like Karl Barth, Emil Brunner, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, they grasped onto Buber's concept of unity in differentiation as both a basis for Trinitarian relationality and for how humans image God in our relationality. They saw Buber's I-Thou relationship as, as a cure for the modern affliction of alienation and meaninglessness. Particularly, through an encounter with the eternal thou, who is God. Now Bart, he took this all a step further in bringing gender into the forefront of his unity in differentiation concept. The binary male-female relationship was the most potent manifestation for the Trinitarian relationship. But this view was not his alone. Enter Charlotte von Kirschbaum. She began as his student before becoming his secretary, theological assistant, and constant companion. She was the mind behind much of his writings, including Bart's seminal work, Church Doctrine, which came to a stop upon her death. What's fascinating is the primal Imago Dei view of the marriage relationship that came out of the Bart von Kirschbaum theological relationship. She had never married, and he had a tenuous home life and, and even offered his wife the option for divorce. Though the Bart family remained intact, historians describe their marriage as cold. And to complicate things, von Kirschbaum scandalously moved into the Bart home. She and Bart spent their days in the study engaging theological work and building a relationship of emotional intimacy that raised the eyebrows of many friends and colleagues. On the one hand, Bart helped pave the way for women like von Kirschbaum to have a seat at the table and to change the conversation. Her views, while far from the feminist arguments of today, they were truly groundbreaking at the time and opened new doorways of theological conversations. But on the other hand, the Bart von Kirschbaum relationship reveals something both sad and, and disjointed about their binary gender ideology. While it's doubtful that they ever engaged in any kind of physical affair, I think it's really interesting that the work that these two produced together so highly esteemed a male-female relational ideal that neither could attain in their own relationships, and in so doing, excluded many others as well. And so, with this historical backdrop, let's turn to a really fascinating conversation with our guest. My name is Megan DeFranza. Megan is a theologian and the author of the book Sex Difference in Christian Theology, Male, Female, and Intersex in the Image of God. She's a researcher at Boston University School of Theology and the producer of the upcoming documentary film Stories of Intersex and Faith. 
I grew up in a conservative Christian family. My grandparents were traditional missionaries in the Belgian Congo. My parents actually were missionaries for a while, too. So I grew up in a very passionate evangelical home and wanted to serve God with my life. So I went off to Bible college and realized very quickly that the fact that I was a woman with a mind who wanted to serve God, things were a lot more complicated. <laughs> um because I was female, and so started asking questions in college, like, how can I serve God and not accidentally sin at the same time for doing something that only men are supposed to do? Um, so that's where a lot of my questions about theology, biblical studies, and gender began, was trying to figure out my own vocation. I did not feel called to children's ministry. I was not dreaming about being a homemaker. I thought maybe I'd be a missionary, Bible translator or something. And the more I dug, the more dissatisfied I was with Bible scholars and theologians, both on the conservative side of the conversation and on the liberal side. I felt like neither side, if you want to call them that, was saying things that fit my experience as a woman who was devoted to Jesus and wanted to serve God with her whole life, but whose experience just didn't fit their descriptions. And so I ended up digging deeper, you know, went on for my <laughs> doctoral studies and ended up dissertating on sex differences and their significance for theology. So yeah, it was um, a long road <laughs> of trying to figure out who am I allowed to be as a woman loves God? I think that's a question a lot of us women are asking. And I think we do feel um, so often stuck between two polarizing ideologies. Mm-hmm. And kind of what I'm after with this podcast is really the conversations that maybe aren't happening in those polarized Mm. worlds, um, just mm-hmm. kind of that middle space. So I really appreciate you taking the time to, to join me for this. So the feminine experience of the image of God. We've looked at both Hellenistic thought and Enlightenment rationalism. So I'm wondering if you can kind of like bring us forward historically into this relational or social view of the image of God. How did, mm-hmm. how did we get here and, and what is it? Sure. Well, the main conversations had been how are humans like God? And so the question of, well, God doesn't have a body, so what, whatever way we're like God, it must be related to our spirit or our soul. And so the substantive view, you know, said that the image of God is the soul. And of course, the soul was connected to rationality, and men were believed to be more rational than women. And so that whole view ended up causing the early church fathers to debate, are women as fully made in the image of God as men, because we all know, of course, that men are more rational. And so they have these higher level souls than women. Of course, you have the platonic idea that, you know, men who fell from virtue were reincarnated as women. So sounds like you discussed that a little bit already. And then as biblical studies advanced, there were uh, other scholars that said, wait a minute, like, how did images work in the ancient world? Like, here's the creation story. You have God creating a kingdom, creating a realm, and then putting an image of the God in that realm. And kings in the ancient Near East would set up images of themselves and territories to remind people who is in charge. 
So you have this other ancient Near Eastern perspective rather than the Hellenistic perspective. But then it was still a question of, well, how do these little rulers mirror or image the rule of the divine? Because the image of God was now associated with rule. Well, we all know that men are meant to rule and women are meant to obey. You know, even Calvin, you know, would reiterate that along the way. Um, And so, again, all of these images of God tended to to be troublesome for women, not on purpose, I don't think. Maybe I'm reading the tradition more generously, but I think their vision of ideal humanity would bump up against their gender assumptions and how women were not as fully human and so not as fully made in the image of God. And then fast forward, not even 100 years ago, Karl Barth, and this is important, his female research assistant, von Kirschbaum, the social view of the image of God comes from her. Yes. <laughs> it's just that Bart popularized it and then gets the credit for it. Um, but they were looking at the text and says, let us make Adam, humankind, in our image. And so what does God create? Male and female. And so the question was, okay, wait a minute. Here's this interesting plural pronoun, let us make, in our image. And what does God make? Not one but two. So instead of asking, well, how does an individual human image the divine, whether it's through their soul or through their rationality or through their dominion, is there something significant to God using the plural to speak of God's self and the creation, not of one to be in God's image, but two who are then called to be one. And so this really turned the conversation, again, away from substance and function toward relationality. Humans can't mirror God singularly. Fast forward from the garden through the people of Israel to Jesus and the church. The church is really the image. We were never meant to image God on our own. We're always called into communion into union with God, but also that union with God is a union with all of our siblings in Christ along the way, the koinonia, the fellowship. So we have von Kirschbaum and Karl Barth saying, wait a minute, this idea of relationality is important. It's important in the garden, and it's important in the big story of God's redemption of a people. Hmm. So when God talks of the bride— we collectively are the bride of Christ. So there's a relational quality to that. Yeah, I definitely want to spend some time talking about Bart. Um, can you talk a little bit about his views of of binary distinction? Yep. This is philosophy turning toward relationality. So it's not like Bart and von Kirschbaum came up with these ideas out of nowhere. The right. conversation in Germany and in you know intellectual circles was turning toward this idea of relation. He was influenced certainly by Martin Buber, who was a Jewish philosopher who came up with this idea of the I and the thou. We often think of relating to God as if God is an it, but God is not an it, and neither are humans its. And so the uh, this idea of I and thou is calling us to relate to one another as subjects rather than objects. And so this is transforming philosophy and theology way beyond Christian theology. And so here we have this idea coming into conversations around the image of God and how Adam and Eve are these subjects. But for Bart, 
there was always an order to it, a taxonomy, he would call it. So Adam is always first. It's always A before B. And as much as he tried to work toward an egalitarian perspective, the order always had to be Adam and then Eve. And so you have this fundamental inequality in the way he understood male and female, even if he's wanting to soften the hierarchy among humans, there's still a direction. You have God over human, still you have Christ over church, male over female, there's still a direction to these relations. Mm. However, the big correction was now women were essential to the image of God. Right. Where before well, we know Adam was made in the image of God and maybe Eve just the image of the image. Well, no, if if the image is relationality to be an image of the Trinity who is fundamentally a relational being, a communion of love, then Eve is essential. Adam can't be the image of God without Eve. This was good news for women, even though it wasn't as good news as some of us right. would like. He didn't go all the way. But the conversation was shifting to seeing women as essential to the image of God and seeing relationality as essential. That's great. I think that really helps bring out this new kind of thought. And initially, it's wonderful news for us women because, you know, our bodies are included in this. Our minds do have value. I love that. And I'm drawn to that. And works out really great for the church in a lot of ways. So on one hand, this this seems like a really positive turn, but I think it does leave some implications that I am uncomfortable with. Can you talk about some of the things that would um, be of concern from a, a woman's perspective? I think um, Bart is still working with stereotypes. He's still working with hierarchies. I mean, this is the... 40s and 50s, you know, so <laughs> these ideas that men are a certain way and women are a different way. The sexes being very different, complementary to be sure, of course not egalitarian in that complementarity. So his work fed into this early complementary language um, with hierarchy, which was great that women were included, but where we were still, and men too, being seen through the lenses of gender stereotypes, gender ideals, you know, whatever the culture was, German culture or American culture. Mm. Uh, so then we see this being taken up by later theologians. And, you know, the one that I focused on in my book was Stan Grenz as a Baptist and an evangelical and an evangelical who was working similarly to move evangelicals toward valuing women and women's place, not just in the home, not just in Sunday school class, but as yeah. theologians at the table and worked very hard to shift away from this complementary hierarchy to an egalitarian understanding of the sexes, but he's still working with Bart's system of sex differences. So he still will say men see the world very differently. And in that, the next leap is, well, if Jesus was a man, in what ways is Jesus the image of God? Does Jesus as the image of God make the image of God always essentially male-centered, androcentric? Is it even possible to think of women being as made in the image of God if they're 
can't be conformed to Jesus in the same way. And you see this, of course, in the Roman Catholic tradition, which is why women can't be priests, is because they don't have the same kind of body that Jesus had. And so we have these distinctions between the sexes still, even within the relational view of the Trinity, making true equality very, very difficult. So then the response to that was the feminist, well, no, we're all the same. We're exactly the same. There are no differences between men and women. And so these arguments that socialization is really the only way that um, we come to see these differences. And I think the history of, you know, feminist thought in the last number of decades has been working from first, we're very different. And so we need each other, but oh, still hierarchy. So now we're not different at all. And then saying, wait a minute, we're different in lots of ways. And, you know, women aren't just different from men. Women are different from women and class and race and social location and family, all these other relationships impact the way that we're different from one another. So now it's exploded. We go from two to one to as many as there are possible. Everyone performs gender differently than everyone else. And so it's just been interesting to see as we've tried to figure out image of God and brought it into conversation with gender questions, how many genders there are, um, then becomes the question. Mm. Uh, so it's just interesting to see the history of theology be in conversation with, you know, first wave feminism and then second and then third wave feminism, um, which is where we are now in trying to recognize that sex difference may not be the primary difference. But you have someone like Stan Grenz and I think Karl Barth, too, would say, no, this is a primary difference that is deeper. And John Paul II says this, too, in his Theology of the Body. It's it's an essential core fundamental difference. Your identity is rooted in your femaleness or your maleness. And for them, there were only those two before race, before class, before any other experiences. And the conversation is more complex now. Yeah. This is a great segue to uh, the intersex experience. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of listeners are probably asking, what is intersex? This might be a new category, a new awareness. Can you talk a little bit about that? Educate us a little bit. Intersex is a new term for uh, old phenomena, people whose bodies are born in between male and female or with like a mixture of categories. And in the ancient world, sometimes they were called hermaphrodites. So that's a term that people are more familiar with, but it's not one we use anymore because hermaphrodites were mythological creatures who had like a full set of male stuff and a full set of female stuff and could impregnate themselves, right? And that's humanly impossible. So intersex is a new term for bodies that are naturally born with variations from the majority. So this can be genitals that you're not sure if the baby's male or female at birth or things you discover later. So the baby looks female, but then you find out that later on when they don't menstruate, that, oh, they don't actually have a uterus. Oh, they're, they don't have ovaries, they have testes. Oh, their body has the normal levels of male hormones, but their cells can't process them, something called androgen insensitivity. So you have what looks like a female body on the outside and a male body in some ways on the inside at the chromosome level. 
And then you can have a, a baby in some ways the other way, born with XX, which is your typical female pattern, but with higher levels of testosterone that would masculinize the female body. So those are some of the more common kinds of intersex. Sometimes people will have a mosaic. So some of their cells have an XY and some of their cells have an X and no Y. And so those genes are giving signals to the body that, you know, in some ways are fighting against each other. And so you can have a body anywhere on the spectrum between male and female. So there isn't one intersex experience. Many intersex people are perfectly content to identify as male or female from a perspective of gender identity. But as it's been safer and we're gaining language for gender non-binary, people who don't identify clearly as male or female, then I think we're, we are seeing more intersex people saying, actually, that fits my experience better than this binary model. Then those are other ways, social ways that we're making it safer for intersex people to be who they are, however that manifests for them. What is their take on this, this relational or social view of the image of God? And how, to, how can this inform maybe our conversation in a different way? So if we're looking at the history of the image of God, so first, if God is the substance of the soul, then we're either trying to get away from our body or have a masculine soul. So women need to become men <laughs> to be in, made in the image of God. Right. But then with this complementary model coming out of the social trinity, well, no, you, women can be women and men can be men, but they need to be together. So then we're in a complementary heterosexual relationship, right, that this is the primary image of God. It leaves people who are either not men or not women or not clearly male or female. So you can't be the man in the original model. You can't be singly a man or a woman in complementary relationship if your body is a mix of male and female. So the way the image of God had been defined was leaving out people for whom those categories were not neat and clean and clear. You know, it's one of these things where if our theology, and this is just me talking here as a theologian, if our theology doesn't work for everyone, it doesn't work. Right. Right. It, it's not sufficient for theology to speak even to the majority of human experience. And we're learning this now, right? There's a lot of conversation about listening to the margins or the subaltern or these all these different ways that we say, hey, you loudmouths, will you be quiet for a while and let the people who haven't been able to speak you know, in our meeting today or in the last four or five thousand years <laughs> have the opportunity to say, well, I, I see that a little differently, or that raises different questions for me because of my experience. And intersex people are among the many whose voices have been silenced and who haven't had the opportunity to do theological reflection in these ways. And so I think we're just beginning to hear these voices. It's not like there's an established group of intersex theologians who are bringing all these voices. I think we're still just beginning to listen as we are beginning to work toward uh, legal protection so that, you know, babies who are born intersex are not being forced into corrective surgeries that too often have lifelong traumatic consequences. And I think the more we work to protect those rights at 
you know, in hospitals and in our social settings and the more we make space, you know, in college dormitories or we, we just have to think beyond two. Right. We're only working with these majority categories that then will we'll make it much safer for intersex folks to say, you know, I read that passage in the Bible differently. I think about being human differently. Many don't feel safe to admit that they're intersex to begin with, much less to do theological reflection. Hmm. That that seems threatening on one level for churches, I think, to hear, because sure. that sounds like we're opening the door for all kinds of um, moral issues in terms of sexual identity. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Like, how, how do we approach that? Yeah, um, I, I do think people find it scary in churches, although... It's also true that when they learn that this complexity is at the biological level, it does take a level of the anxiety out of it. I think still with transgender people, because they can't point to an intersex diagnosis, you know, something that a doctor would say, yes, your body's different. So they're considered crazy or they're considered rebelling against, you know, God's truth or, you know, rejecting the truth of their bodies. I don't think those are fair characterizations, Hmm. but when it comes to intersex, you can't say people are crazy. You're having a doctor say, oh no, look, there are these differences in the bodies. Oh, they're born this way. Oh, this isn't a choice that they're making. So intersex allows us a way into the conversation where we can at least set aside these knee-jerk reactions of rebellion or confusion or choice because those aren't a part of the equation. And if our biology is more complex, hmm, what does that mean for people who show up with a non-binary gender identity? As much as intersex disrupts these categories and people initially find it scary, it's also helpful because it's verifiable. And so it allows us to enter into the conversations that many of us in the conservative church um, have felt were off limits for quite some time. Right. and that said, intersex people shouldn't be used just so that we can, you know, talk about gay people or so we can talk about transgender people. Their experiences are different. They have their own concerns. And so you, you don't want to use them for other ends at the right. same time. So one of, of my passion areas is um, what I would call liminal space. That space mm-hmm. between things um, where yeah. transformation happens, where we grow and um, where we gain insights into really who we are and our values. You pointed out in your book an implication of our current movement. It's wonderful that it it gives space for women, but Mm -hmm. it also reduces the margins for people who Mm -hmm. are in between. Can you talk about the historically and biblically, how that's changed and and how that space has kind of shrunk? Yeah, it's interesting because Many of us are discovering differences of sex development or intersex variations now as if it's something new. Well, the ancient church, the ancient Jewish communities, they were quite familiar with differences of sex development because people were born at home. They were born with midwives. They weren't born in hospitals that were quickly trying to cover up and correct these things. So the ancient fathers, including Augustine, talk about hermaphrodites as if it's like, well, everybody knows they're hermaphrodites. They're people we don't know how to classify as male or female. Hmm. In rabbinic tradition, 
four additional categories beyond male and female were created to describe people who fell in between the categories of male or female. And one of those terms, a naturally born eunuch or eunuch of the sun, saris chama in Hebrew, is the term that Jesus uses in the New Testament. And that usually shocks people to say, wait a minute, <laughs> Jesus knew about differences of sex development? Yeah, and he talks about them in Matthew chapter 19, that there are eunuchs who've been made so by others, there are eunuchs who've been eunuchs from birth, and there are eunuchs who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And so what I do in my book is unpack the history of the interpretation of that passage. But in many ways, in the ancient world, to be human was to be male, but very few people were perfectly male. And so to be human was like the sliding scale with perfect masculinity at the top and then femininity at the bottom and then this gender ambiguity actually in the middle. Because um, for a woman to be masculine was to move up the scale toward perfection so in some ways, hermaphrodites occupied this middle space. They weren't fully human because they weren't fully male, but they were certainly better off than women at the bottom. So there was a spectrum in the ancient world, but it was a very hierarchical spectrum, and class played into that as well. And then you have this shift in you know, the modern period, the romantic period, toward, oh, men and women are so very different, and there's nothing in between to this complementary model, this pink and blue Mars-Venus language. And now we're recovering the idea of the spectrum, that there is male and female, and there are bodies and identities that fall in between. But we're trying to get away from that being a vertical line, you know, of hierarchy to more of a horizontal spectrum where one is not better than the other. But we're actually recovering what they knew in the ancient world, is that people don't come in just two kinds. <laughs> they come all along this spectrum. And there so, was space for them there. There was some space. There was at least language in many ancient cultures, including Greece and Rome. Uh, in the Roman Empire, the laws protecting or oppressing hermaphrodites varied depending on who was in charge. Um, laws about could eunuchs marry, could they not? So, like, it wasn't great, but it was certainly better to have your identity acknowledged and to have you recognized as a legal category. Um, whereas today, you know, some of the debates going on in Australia right now over same-sex marriage, well, same-sex marriage or heterosexual marriage, if you're intersex, you don't fit either of those categories because you don't have a clear male or female, so you can't marry anybody. So there are no legal protections for intersex marriage under those categories. It's one of the reasons we use the equal marriage instead of same-sex marriage, because equal marriage opens that category up to intersex people as well. So we're still working on recovering, having legal space. We're still not sure what to do about sports, you know, the debates over the Olympics oh, and yeah. should Castor Semyana be able to have the gold, but what if her body has extra testosterone? You know, all of these debates that we see right now in sport are... Um, debates over the legal status of being intersex. So we're coming back around to legal conversations they had in the ancient world, quite surprisingly to many. Can you share with us as a theologian, what is another way we could move forward or uh, just shift the conversation about the image of God? 
Well, I do think there is value to the shift toward the social view of the image of God, that our identity is fundamentally relational and that in the Christian story, we're called into relationship not only with God, but with one another. We're called into this community. And I think, again, getting beyond the two, the binary, the I and thou, or the male and female, to the three, of the Trinity, the three just opens up space for more, that we're going beyond just two that are face-to-face to to a community of more than two. This is the, the shift that's happening now, which I think is helpful. I don't think the social view replaces necessarily other views of the image of God, but it is another piece of the conversation about what it is to be human and what it is to be like God. There are also other traditions which look at um, the image of God as really one of holiness or love. We find this certainly in the Wesleyan theological tradition. But I end my book actually using the theological reflections of an Eastern Orthodox nun named Nonna Verna Harrison, who wrote a book on theological anthropology called The Many-Splendored Image of God. Oh, yes. You know, so she looks at many different ways in which the image of God has been understood. And I think it's helpful for us. I've heard when Jewish scholars, rabbinic scholars talk about the scriptures, that they see it as this gem, like this diamond that has all of these different sides. And of course, the light's going to reflect off it differently as you turn it. In many ways, scripture is like that. We have to keep turning it, looking at at it from different angles, and we see different light reflected, different perspectives, that, that it has this beauty because of its complexity. And I think that applies to this idea of image of God, I'm, I'm not trying to find the one right answer to what is it? What is the image of God? What is it to be human? Because to be human is to be so many things. There's this beautiful complexity and mystery to God, which is part of how humans image God in our own mystery, in our own complexity. And so I like to think of the image of God with Harrison's many splendored image or with this image of turning this gorgeous jewel and looking at it from a different angle. So I think virtues in there, holiness is in there, community is in there, communion across difference is in there. Oh, there's so many, so many things that that can help us to see. I think it it frees us to think more about it, that this is not a closed conversation, that theologians have it all figured out and we just have to decide whose team we're on. But no, that we're still thinking, we're still learning, and that each of us in our differences can contribute to this conversation. So I'm 42, and I grew up a good little evangelical girl and went to Bible college and evangelical seminary. And I feel like just now (laughs) I'm starting to trust my own ideas and my own voice. In some ways, it makes me just so very sad that the way I was raised, I was not taught to take my own ideas seriously, my own ideas when they were the same as other people, but especially when they were different. And, you know, I'm raising two daughters now and to try and raise them in a Christian home that gives them the confidence that they are as much made in the image of God as any man, as any brother, and that their ideas about God, their ideas about the world and themselves need to be heard. So I would just want to encourage your listeners (laughs) to give themselves permission to think for yourself 
to speak your ideas even when they're not the popular ideas that are being heard. In our churches, it's hard to find space to say, well, what is your perspective as a woman? And then also for those who are intersex or have other differences that make them feel like they don't have a voice. I just want to see that change in our churches because it shouldn't have taken me this long and this many degrees to feel like, oh, I'm allowed to speak and think differently. And that's okay. It's not rebellious or sinful. It's reflecting God in my own unique way, which is what we're all called to do. I really resonate with Megan because we have really a lot in common. Not only are we the same age and share the same messages of a conservative evangelical upbringing, we even attended the same seminary just a year apart. And we both have two young daughters that we hope will find their voice much sooner than we have. So I'm really grateful for this conversation, but still, I have a mixed response to the relational view of the image of God. On one hand, the idea of imaging God through community really, really grips me. I see it throughout the Old Testament in the communal nature of Israel and in the New Testament metaphors of the body and the bride of Christ. And perhaps this is where I lament the splintered body of Christ that I too often experience today. But this discussion poses some really important questions that I hope that you will take up as fodder for your own conversations. Meekin's research provides insight into other perspectives outside the raging complementarian versus egalitarian debates and also raises questions about the implications to the doctrine of the Trinity, which I haven't really gone into here, but I hope that you will investigate. And it poses important questions about the image of God and the intersex experience. While the relational view opens women to the Imago Dei like never before in history, has this win for women further marginalized those betwixt and between a binary gender distinction? So what questions does it raise for you? Well, I'd love to hear your feedback. I'd be much more tickled if you could share a conversation that this episode has opened up for you. So be nice, be loving, engage well, and let me know how it goes. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Betwixt Podcast. You can find more Betwixt episodes and view our show notes at betwixtpodcast.com or you can visit my partners at missioalliance.org. Missio Alliance is resourcing a church reimagined for a world recreated. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed and given Betwixt a positive review on iTunes or Google Play. If you haven't done that yet, please consider taking a minute to help me out. This really is the fuel of podcasts and it makes a big difference. Special thanks to my friends Rivoli for sharing the music that you hear now. You can check them out at ryvoli.com or Facebook slash Rivoli. Hey, it has been a real pleasure to produce this podcast for you. Thank you for holding liminal space with me today. Catch you next time.